0: Hi everybody, just a quick announcement at the top of today's episode. After this week, we're going to be switching to a bi-weekly format. That's once every other week, because I'm going to have a few more time commitments going on in my personal life. And I want to carry on getting content out to you guys without necessarily having to miss weeks and leading to a general sort of sense of chaos. Um, And while I'm here, I'd like to ask you if there's anything you want to know about the end of the world. If there's anything you think about how our rankings going so far. If you have any suggestions for episodes for shows, anything like that, hit us up on Twitter at physicspod. We're quite active on there, so you're sure to get through to us. Um, And stick around at the end of the show for a trailer for Poplar Cove, which are a horror-slash-sci-fi-slash-who-knows-what-they-are fiction podcast that we're associated with. Okay, enjoy the show! And survive while there's people crying Hello and welcome to the Teotihuacan special of Physical Attraction. This time, it's episode 8. I'm going to be talking about cyber warfare. When I was growing up, I read an awful lot of books. The best part of any day was the part when the real world would leave me alone. I'd finish my work in class, or I was done with homework, or in the car, and I could just read to my heart's content. And so for years, everyone around me was getting involved in sporting activities and making out with each other, and I was reading. One of my favourite places in the world is a little town in Wales, Hay-on-Wye, which surely has the highest density of second-hand books in the world. You could go there for a weekend with £30 and come back with a boot full of books. Happy days. And I never felt like I was missing out on anything, because I had faith in the power of language. Because I felt like it contained within it a possibility that was practically infinite. Not infinite like numbers are infinite, but infinite in the way that the universe is infinite. Sure, it might actually have a limit somewhere, but we'll never be able to see beyond it. We'll never be able to reach the edge. A practical infinity of words, and different combinations of words. And I thought they were infinitely powerful too. The only thing preventing me from achieving what I wanted, the only thing that could stop anyone, was a lack of information and a lack of imagination. They didn't have the ability, they didn't have the words for the situation. But somewhere out there, in that great semantic universe... There must be, if only we could find it, the perfect combination, the novel that would make you a millionaire, the confident answers that would get you the job, the speeches that would tap into the psyche of a nation and make you politically powerful, the love note you could write that would be just perfectly attuned to win someone over. I believe that, if not everything, most problems could be solved just by reaching out and grabbing it, the right combination of words in the right order. And I believed in the infinity digits of pi, and I believed that if something is infinite, then it must contain everything. So somewhere, encoded in the vast planes of this transcendental number, must exist the sentences that would persuade people to stay, the poetry that would shift and bend and change reality with its own transcendence. I just lacked the imagination to find them. Nowadays I'm a bit less convinced that I'm ever going to find magical keys like that. Maybe sometimes they don't exist and there's nothing you can say or write that will change the facts. But when words and ideas can be perfectly synchronised with the lay of the land, with the way the world is, then you have something. Then you have power. And it may well prove to be more power than the wealth and the riches of the mighty. After all, today so much of that wealth is no more than numbers on a computer screen and records on file somewhere. It may well prove to be more power than is wielded by a politician, because that power flows from their identity, and what happens when it can be stolen? And it may be more power than is concentrated in all the physical armies of the Earth, for all their marching, because when their deadliest weapons are controlled by computers, the word is the code, and if you own the code, you might just own the world. And we can imagine that maybe, out there in the vast untyped hordes of imaginary binary strings, there are lines of code that could wreak havoc on modern society. Even as I'm writing this, There's constant news of the cyber attacks via the WannaCry Worm and similar ransomware that are bringing entire governments into disruption, and it seems like these are basically just unleashed by petty criminals, you know. So in terms of disruption, the lack of physical damage caused by cyber warfare might make you think that it's a less tangible scenario for the end of the world as we know it. So it's this intersection of the cyber world and the real world, or meat space if you like, that we have to look at. And what it lacks in the raw destructive power compared to, say, a supervolcano, I think that's more than compensated by how likely it is to happen. It's already being used. But how realistic is a real end-time scenario? How much progress has been made towards cyber warfare? How much of our system is genuinely vulnerable to attack? How does the land lie? One of the issues is that no one really knows the full extent of the capacity of cyber warfare. And because of this, it could be like when the first nuclear weapons were tested. Cataclysmic destruction beyond what anyone expects. Or it could be that it's a damp squib. In the article he wrote for Foreign Policy, one of the people who first started using the term cyber war talked about the changing nature of the threat. In John Aquila's view, when in 1993 he first started using the term, the threat was mainly as a companion to conventional war. That is, as an army invaded another country their hackers would simultaneously cripple the ability of the nation to defend itself. So, in his view, cyber warfare was almost playing the role that saboteurs and fifth columnists did in previous wars, by trying to create havoc in the defensive forces with sudden, short-term sabotage. And this has since occurred. When Russia invaded parts of Georgia in 2008, the communications network for the Georgian military was hacked down, and this smoothed the progress of the invasion but this is no longer the only means by which people have considered or even actually waged cyber warfare. We now have the capacity to launch cyber attacks without any boots on the ground at all, and this makes it very dangerous because the international lines have not yet been drawn that are being crossed. In a lot of ways, this kind of question boils down to how much of our infrastructure, how much of what's important to people, is automated, and all of the stuff that's automated How much is in closed loops that would be difficult to hack externally? Which is an interesting question. One little piece of historical trivia that's always worth reminding ourselves of is that one time in 2010 that the stock market fell by a trillion dollars in five minutes. Maybe you don't remember it. That's because the stocks recovered to their previous values within half an hour. The event, the 2010 flash crash, is still somewhat mysterious. But it was caused because so much Wall Street trading has become entirely automated. Once the stocks fall below a certain level, more and more robots started to sell, wiping billions off the value of the Dow Jones. Eventually, attempts were made to pin it all on some rogue trading from one guy in London working out of his parents' house, and he's been arrested and charged. The man involved, Nav Sarau, is a fascinating individual, so he might have made $40 million from the flash crash, but by the time he had been arrested, he was unable to even post his own bail. The reason? He'd essentially been scammed out of all of his money in an attempt to avoid tax. The Bloomberg report about him, which is long and fascinating, it characterises him as an incredibly socially naive, but mathematically genius type of guy. I don't know how true that is, but it's a fascinating life story, whatever way you look at it. I mean, bringing down a stock market by a trillion dollars, making millions and then losing it all. But it seems like they pinned this on him, it wasn't entirely his fault. Other theories pinpoint a single, unusually large sell of $4.1 billion by a specific company sending the algorithms and human traders into overdrive. In reality, the exact cause, why this was triggered, is still not well understood, although there are plenty of theories. It could just be that in a system as complex as the stock market, it's much like the climate system that we talked about in the episode on supervolcanoes. Sometimes it's just right to be pushed in a specific direction, and a tiny forcing like the big trade or NAV's insider trading, can have much larger impacts than it normally should. Things have reached a critical mass, and it's very dangerous to meddle with it. I'm not saying that a sophisticated cyber attack that would cause a global financial crash is necessarily possible, but what incidents like this show is that so much of our economy, so much of our lives, are more intangible and mysterious than they were before, and they are inextricably linked to automated phenomena. If a trillion gets wiped off the Dow Jones, It's just numbers on a screen. But in real life, people lose their jobs. People lose their health insurance. People die. Human psychology has contributed to stock market crashes in the past. It's now necessary to worry about the psychology of algorithms as well. It's an object lesson in the fragility of automated and complicated systems. And indeed, people who are experts on cybersecurity say that as our systems grow ever more complicated... They're also ever more vulnerable to attack, for the simple reason that the more lines of code you have, the more vulnerabilities you'll have, and the more difficult it is to keep track of them. The simplest system is a very simple closed loop, but we can't run the world on things like that. So leaving aside the idea that trillions of dollars could vanish from the values of companies in a heartbeat without anything physically changing, what have cyber attackers been able to achieve so far? A lot of the more publicised stuff about cyber attacks that have taken place has been due to Anonymous, and it's DDoS attacks. As I'm sure you all know, DDoS, or Distributed Denial of Service, is a type of cyber attack where you use a great number of infected computers to simultaneously access a single website. It gets overloaded with traffic, and consequently crashes. So these are very visible, and they often get a high degree of publicity, because a popular website is just down and no one can access it. So Anonymous used them against major websites like Visa and PayPal when those websites declared that they'd no longer allow people to make payments to WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. DDoS attacks have been used to take down government web pages, along with those of major news organisations. But nothing is changed or altered, and once the DDoS attack is over, things return to normal. So they're really just an annoying inconvenience in a lot of cases. One can imagine that you might use a DDoS alongside a more substantial attack, kind of like cutting telephone wires behind enemy lines, to sow confusion and discord. But let's face it, in the event of an apocalypse, chances are that panicky humans will down all of the useful disaster websites themselves just by trying to access them. If the internet's even running. So widespread DDoS attacks, although they happen, are hardly apocalyptic. It might damage some individual companies. If you manage to take down Amazon.com for a week, say, that would cost them millions. But not being able to buy cheap second-hand books is hardly the apocalypse, so they're more a form of protest or minor revenge. But we know how deeply everything depends on information technology. There was a critical infrastructure attack against Saudi Arabian oil companies caused by the Shamoon virus, where, dramatically, 85% of a company's IT systems were shut down. They even resorted to running around desperately pulling out plugs to try to stop the spread of the virus, and this caused millions of dollars of damage. We won't get through this episode without talking about the most successful cyber attack in history, which took place back in June 2010. Stuxnet was a very complex piece of code that was specifically developed by the American and Israeli militaries, although neither of them ever admitted it, to target Iranian nuclear facilities. Key to the production of enriched uranium is the use of a centrifuge. Essentially, it's just a big mechanical spinny thing that separates atoms by mass and so it can help you enrich uranium. Stuxnet targeted the mechanical logic control circuits of these centrifuges. These programmable logic controllers, or PLCs, are essentially the link between computer systems and the mechanical systems that they're operating on. Essentially, it could target these and cause them to overload, and the centrifuges to spin themselves apart. Part of the devious and complex nature of the attack involves significant covering of tracks. An aspect of this with that The computer that controlled the centrifuge was also completely compromised. So the fact that the centrifuges were spinning out of control was hidden from monitoring systems. It would display just behaviour as normal. Only when someone went to physically examine it would they have realised that it had been damaged. And then what would they do? They'd try and shut it down by pressing the big red button. But any attempts to shut it down would also rely on the compromised computer system. The big red shutdown button would not work. The attack was a success, it might have destroyed 20% of Iran's nuclear centrifuges without a shot being fired. And it's one of the earliest examples of how a highly targeted attack can destroy physical, expensive equipment at a top security nuclear facility. It was a very specifically designed weapon. Although in the initial phase, Stuxnet spread to pretty much any computer it could get its hands on, It only targeted the specific type of operating system that these facilities were using, and then only the specific types of motor that were being used in the centrifuges. It also contained instructions that would lead it to self-destruct after a certain amount of time. Now, this was clearly designed by the American and Israeli militaries, and it was done so in a way that wouldn't cause widespread damage, so it was very specifically targeted. Yet you can easily imagine a very similar cyber weapon designed by less scrupulous people, Equally capable of hiding itself and spreading maliciously, but with no such sniper-like targeting, that could destroy equipment at factories, power plants, anything with a motor that could be infected and compromised. The simultaneous nature of such an attack could overwhelm emergency services and governmental response, especially if it managed to infect a big chunk of infrastructure before it got detected. The floodgates have been opened by Stuxnet for cyber-attacks that cause physical damage. The code is out there already. PLCs in the aging and vulnerable power plant structure of the national grid are a serious concern and could be targeted by cyber attacks. They're running on code that, broadly, is 30 to 40 years old. It has 30 to 40 year old vulnerabilities that haven't been updated, and they weren't even designed with people thinking that they could be attacked. There's very little security consciousness in the design of PLCs. Idaho National Laboratory ran the Aurora experiment in 2007, to demonstrate how a cyber-attack could destroy physical components of the electrical grid. The experiment used a computer program to rapidly open and close a diesel generator's circuit breakers out of phase from the rest of the grid, and this caused it to explode. If you destroy a few generators, such is the vulnerability of the power network that it could shut the grid down nationally. So there's a potential mass disruption scenario where lots of power plants are simultaneously shut down by cyber-attacks. That's pretty scary. It could be done with technology that exists today. And errors in software cause, for example, explosions in natural gas plants and oil refineries on a regular basis. So if these things can occur even by mistake, it would be easy enough for a hacker to do this. But lots of power plants aren't hooked up to the internet, and that makes them slightly more difficult to infect. As is the case with Stuxnet, which needed to infect the power plants one by one by infected USB sticks. So it could be very difficult for this kind of thing to happen overnight. But in some cases, people don't have cybersecurity in mind. For example, there was a hydroelectric dam that had remote access, which meant that people could log in from their laptops at home and control it. But this could be used by hackers just as easily as it could be used by the people who were supposed to be doing it, who worked at the power plant. So that kind of thing really can't happen. It could be difficult for this kind of attack to happen overnight. But if it did and the power supply was disrupted, you can imagine all of the usual Teot scenarios of mass panic, threatened food supply, and general, albeit temporary, carnage. It's not quite up there with the devastation from some of the other scenarios on the list, but a permanent power cut, or one that lasted for a few months, would be pretty bad. I mean, just think of how many people's jobs depend on being able to log on to a computer. And there is precedent for this occurring. The ongoing troubles in Ukraine have involved Russian cyber attacks on the power grid. First, the hackers compromised systems using cleverly targeted phishing emails. Then they remotely switched off power substations and attacked the other IT systems in the grid. Finally, DDoS attacks maximized the inconvenience by making information about the outage difficult to find. Yet even with what was clearly a pretty big and coordinated operation almost certainly carried out with backing of the Russian government, the net result was that 0.015% of Ukraine's electricity supply was disrupted for about a day. Like Stuxnet, you have to scale up the attacks that have already occurred to imagine them getting anywhere near the end of the world. Although, you know, if the power goes out and the TV doesn't work, your family might actually have to talk to each other, and that can correspond to all kinds of ends of worlds. One particularly concerning aspect of cyber attacks is the anonymity. Obviously, this all came into the political news recently, where it was possible for quite a while for the hack of the DNC server emails to be disputed. No one could say, without it being disputed, whether the attack was carried out by the Russians or not for a while. If a large-scale cyber-attack corresponded with a time of highly-raised political tensions, let's say between Russia and the United States, then a risk might be that it could escalate into a much larger conflict, and any conflict between nuclear-armed powers is a threat to humanity all by itself. So since we've mentioned them, what about nuclear powers? I mean, this is the really obvious target to hack if you want to destroy the world. You might be concerned that US missile silos, or even the less-secured, aging ones in places like Russia, India and Pakistan, could be remotely launched by a diabolical hacker, gleefully cackling in his bedroom at the thought of all the girls who rejected him for the high school prom being incinerated. Obviously, the possibility has been considered. These things are somewhat secured. But nuclear weapons vulnerabilities are being discovered all the time. In 2010, after an alarming incident where 50 missiles temporarily went missing from the guidance systems in Wyoming, there was an inquiry into the vulnerability of these systems. And sure enough, some were discovered to be connected to the internet. The missile guidance system specifically could have been compromised and shut down, rendering them impossible to launch. They didn't find anything that suggested that the launch mechanism itself could be triggered by hackers, although if you want to put your conspiracy theorist's hat on, that's the kind of thing we might never find out about. But what if you don't need to hack the launch? Back in the 1990s, it was discovered that hackers could take over the radio transmitter that broadcast signals to nuclear submarines and order them to launch. Nowadays, there are protocols in place that mean you need multiple confirmations before undergoing a launch. But these decisions need to be made in minutes, as they're often supposed to be retaliatory strikes. The nuclear missiles are about to rain down on you, and if you don't act soon, you'll be wiped out. So who knows what might actually happen on the ground if the order gets given. And if someone, maliciously or unwittingly, starts infecting computer systems with USB flash drives containing something like Stuxnet. Is there any limit to what could happen? The chances of someone being able to get a laptop and remotely hack into a silo and launch a missile to hit their least favourite city, let's say Paris for the sake of argument, might be unlikely. But you don't have to do that. What if you avoid infecting the nuclear missiles themselves, but trick humans into launching them by hacking into the system that detects incoming nuclear missiles? You see all these missiles flooding across the radar screen, heading towards you. You've got four minutes to make the decision about whether or not to retaliate. Do you have the time to work out if you're being hacked or not? The hair-trigger nature of these systems is what makes them so scary. Submarines and silo systems are supposedly air-gapped. That means they're not directly hooked up to the internet, which should, theoretically, make them less vulnerable to hacking. But whatever software they use, whatever computer programs they have to run, are inevitably not completely isolated from the rest of the world. They have to be upgraded, maintained and they will rely, at some point in the chain, on network computers that can be compromised. And all of this assumes that the software itself isn't buggy. This stuff has to be immensely complex. It's very, very sensitive, very, very secretive, and not tested all that often, for obvious reasons. So is this ironclad defence, or is it actually very brittle? I mean, UK Trident submarines are running Windows, not Linux, because of the additional cost and inconvenience. Which does make you question how much people are really caring about this. Dr. Andrew Futter, who looks into the possibility of nuclear weapons being compromised by a cyber attack, sums up the situation succinctly. He was asked about the most surprising things he learned as part of his research, and he said, quote, First was the overwhelming confidence of government and military officials in several countries I spoke with that their systems could not be hacked. Second was that the way that so much of the cyber debate is hindered by a lack of accepted definition or common understanding of what cyber means. And third was the extent to which humans and the human-computer interface are often the easiest target and biggest security risk in cyber operation, So, the first point is that the ever-evolving nature of the threat means that people who are in charge of the government and military aren't necessarily the best people who know that much about cyber attacks and cyber warfare. A lot of them probably think that just because their systems are air-gapped, they're invulnerable, but that's not necessarily the case. And the final point to make as far as the cyber-nuclear interface goes is really the final point that I haven't made about the potentials for cyber-attack. Alongside downing our favourite websites, physically destroying power plants via PLCs, or even attacking nuclear weapon systems themselves, the real war is over information. We've all seen numerous hacks that have taken place, and, with apparent ease, classified information has been stolen and released to the public. WikiLeaks, Anonymous, and state actors have all managed to accomplish this. So the real concern might be that key nuclear information and nuclear secrets are stolen by a cyber espionage. This is likely a bigger threat because, while hackers might not have any particular interest in launching nuclear missiles, stealing secrets and selling them to the highest bidder sounds worryingly plausible. If you consider this part of cyber warfare then, why wouldn't you be concerned that this information could fall into the wrong hands? And the information ties into the economic attacks that could be possible. I mean, this goes beyond your credit card details, or the fact that you signed up to Ashley Madison, which was a dating website for people who were trying to have affairs. The identities of thousands of users were, shall we say, ethically leaked? Intellectual property in the US alone is estimated to be worth $3 trillion. Cyber warfare has risks, and there are certainly vulnerabilities. It's undoubtedly true that all major nation-states are developing the capacities to both attack and defend in a future conflict. But I think what makes this prospect really scary is that we don't really know what damage could be achieved yet with cyber weapons. By contrast, nuclear weapons, it's pretty obvious to everyone the damage that they can do. There are public and very visible tests. But for example, an attack like Stuxnet, many people didn't think it was possible until it happened, and it shocked a lot of people. And it shocked a lot of people when it did actually occur. We could be attacked in ways we haven't even thought of yet. And deep vulnerabilities are being discovered all the time. I don't think that currently the lie of the land is such that large-scale cyber warfare would really bring about the end of the world. It would have to be massive in its scope, probably between two rival nation-states, and any war between two superpowers has its own problems. But the issue is that things are becoming increasingly interconnected, and with all the talk about the Internet of Things, where every household appliance might be hooked up to the Internet and some vast centralised network, you have to worry that, at least as individuals, we're perhaps making ourselves more and more vulnerable every day to this type of attack. The more things that connect to the internet, the fewer air-gap technologies we have. The more that infrastructure depends on the internet, the more vulnerable it is. So while the effects might not yet be truly apocalyptic, the plausibility of this kind of threat bumps it up my list. It's already happening. Thanks for listening to this Teotihuacan special of Physical Attraction. I know there's going to be loads of you out there who know way more about the potential for hacking and cyber warfare than me, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. You can tweet us at physicspod, you can email us at physicspod@outlook.com. all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, In the meantime, stay safe. Welcome to Poplar Cove, everyone. This town follows its own set of rules. Who are the Great Old Ones? Is that a rock band or something? You don't know of the Great Old Ones? Powerful deities from space? With physical appearances that no human being could comprehend? Unless, of course, you drink enough coffee. <laughs> uh, summon him with caution, as mere men who have spoken with this beast have gone mad. <laughs> well, that's silly. She talked about elder gods and how they have tentacles. If an elder god were to try and eat me, I should try to punch it in the nose and. no. wait. Maybe that was sharks. Fine. If you're not going to play nice, this reminds me of my favorite soap opera. I'm so glad that you're awake! Oh my, she looks delicious. I would like to smother her in barbecue sauce and- Nope, that's not right. What's going on in my head? Are you dizzy? Seeing double, hallucinating, delirious? Are you seeing characters from some foreign language floating up from the carpet? Are they forming words that you're suddenly privy to? Do you hear chanting of some kind when you're alone? Are they telling you how to summon the beast? I'm... fine. Our theme music is Get Ready for the Apocalypse by Astrometrics.